0: Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a chasm has been fixed, so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. May God bless the reading of the word. Well, today is our last in our series on the parables according to Luke, those parables that are unique in the Gospel of Luke. So far, we have focused on the Good Samaritan, the unjust manager, and today we find ourselves with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. From these three parables alone, we could learn that Jesus was a pretty smart guy. I mean, think about all of the tactics he could have used to teach people, to get people to understand his message. He could have used fear-based learning, he could have used fact-based lectures, angry tirades, or even just answering people's questions directly. But instead, Jesus brilliantly brings us on a journey through story that leaves us to wrestle with the conclusion. And who doesn't love stories? They are one of the most powerful and effective forms of communication, and they can be done in so many ways. We tell stories one-on-one. We tell stories in big groups. We can read stories in print. We can watch stories unfold on TV and in movies. We can listen to stories on podcasts or radio. No matter your background, your age, where you grew up, everyone can be brought together around a good story. Our love for story begins when we are very, very young. You might think about once upon a time and fairy tales and bedtime stories. These stories that are designed to help us relax our mind and transport us to somewhere else. As we get older, the stories that we learn are supposed to teach us something about the world, traditions, belief systems, and our history. It's interesting, many years ago, scientists found that there is a correlation between stories in the area of the brain which is responsible for empathy and compassion. So when you hear stories, there's something that lights up in your brain and releases this oxytocin when stories are told that resonate with us. So stories, though they can seem simple, and sometimes they are, they're also powerful. They have a way of teaching complex and complicated lessons in a way that is easily digestible. We all have stories about how we came to this place on this particular day, about how we came to be in Mobile, Alabama, about people who have shaped us, about pain that has formed us, and about experiences that have made us who we are in this moment. Well, our passage today from Luke 16 picks up in the middle of Jesus's teaching. And it seems he was in a storytelling mood Because to understand who Jesus was even talking to, we have to back up to Luke chapter 15. And there it says that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem when all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with him. From there, Jesus goes on to tell the parable about the lost sheep. The lost coin the prodigal son the unjust manager and then we come to our parable for today the rich man and lazarus so who is jesus directing this parable to well the scribes and the pharisees the religious elite those who had dedicated their lives to following god and helping others to do the same so in this parable one that is teeming with rich imagery Dualism also lies great challenge for those of us who follow after God. So Jesus begins by introducing the characters. First, we have a rich man, and we can tell he's rich by the way he's described. It says he's wearing purple, which is the color of political power, of privilege, of influence, and maybe even royalty. It says that not only does he host or attend the occasional feast, but that he does so every single day. This man seems to have everything going for him, yet in the story he's not given a name, which is interesting. Next we meet his foil, the poor man named Lazarus. All he does is lie outside the gate of the rich man, desperate for food, yet too weak to beg for it. Lazarus lies there with even wild dogs coming up to lick his sores. I mean, it's just a painful image to think about these two men, and how could they be more different? One is filled with abundance, filled with wealth of comfort and security. The other is lying on the ground. We can imagine he is dirty, he's tired, he's hungry. These two could not be more different. So death comes as a blessing for Lazarus and as a woe to the rich man, as the chasm between them grows even wider than it was on earth Lazarus is carried away by the angels to be with Abraham while the rich man is dropped into Hades by himself When the rich man sees Lazarus with Abraham you know he calls out for mercy he asks for a a drip of water to be let down onto his tongue so he can get just a moment of help in the midst of his agony. And this moment is really telling for us because it shows us that the rich man, though he didn't acknowledge Lazarus in his lifetime, not only did he recognize him, but he knows his name as he calls out for mercy now that he is the one in trouble. This conversation also reveals that he still feels entitled to ask for service, care, and consideration from someone he chose to ignore while he was on earth. So Abraham, he doesn't grant this request. He tells the rich man, you got all you needed in your lifetime. Now it is Lazarus's turn. And then he says, besides, even if I wanted to help you, the chasm between us is too big. There's nothing. There's nothing I can do. Well, we can imagine at this point that the rich man is getting pretty desperate. And it says he begins to beg Abraham. He says, Well, okay, if you can't help me, can you at least send Lazarus to my father's house to warn my brothers about this? Jesus, again, the master storyteller, he doesn't tell us exactly what the rich man would send if he could send a telegraph of sorts through Lazarus to these brothers. We don't know exactly what he would say, and we're left to read between the lines. Would Lazarus tell the brothers to be more generous and kind to the poor? Would Lazarus tell the brothers to get rid of their wealth? Perhaps Lazarus would warn the brothers to read the Torah and to take this faith stuff seriously. But we're not told, because once again, Abraham does not concede. He says, they have Moses and the prophets, and if they're not going to listen to them, why would they listen to someone who was raised from the dead? And that is where the parable ends. Kind of like the parable last week. It doesn't really leave you feeling warm and fuzzy. I'm not sure if this is an example of your brain lighting up with that empathy and compassion and oxytocin because this is a parable that challenges us. And Jesus invites us along to consider the two lives of these men who could not be more different and to consider what it means for us, the why of the story. This parable is a perfect example of how a story can appear simple on the page, but is actually much more layered and complicated when you start to tear it apart. From this one parable, we could could deduce the messages that how we treat people on earth matters. We could learn that we should be mindful of our earthly treasures. We could learn that we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, We could affirm that what the Beatitudes say is true, that blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But for the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus on the last five verses, verses 27 through 31. You know, throughout his life, the rich man was able to do whatever he wanted. You know, if he needed something, he could get it done. We can imagine he was able to hire the best workers. He threw the most extravagant party with delicious food and everyone dressed to the nine. His home was protected from those he didn't want inside with this gate all around it. He was used to having it all, and this assumption follows him to the afterlife. So when he asked Abraham to send Lazarus, we can almost hear him saying something like, Surely for me, something this extravagant can be done. Surely Abraham can convince Lazarus to go and warn my brothers. So imagine his shock when the answer is a firm no. He's left to realize that his power, his authority, and even the time that he had on earth has come to an end. This request and concern for his brothers shows us that the rich man, on some level, knew that this was likely going to happen after his death. It seems that perhaps he was a religious man who had heard about this great chasm. Surely he had heard about it from the stories he had been told growing up. Yet when looking at his life through this very short parable, we don't see a lot of effort put forth as to live as one that believes in the stories of Moses and the prophets. We don't see a lot of fruit in this story. So we're left to wonder, did he ignore the call to faith? Did he not believe it? Or did he just say, I'll worry about that tomorrow, another day, maybe next week? I mean, this is such a human thing, right? Putting things off until tomorrow. This cycle is something that Mike and I go through regularly when it comes to eating right and working out. We will, we will come to a place where, you know, we've been eating kind of gross for a while or our clothes are fitting a little too tight, and we might say, you know, I think it's time we go to the grocery store. I think it's time we get some vegetables. We stop eating out so much. We start going to the gym. You know, we set a whole schedule but we always push the start date to Monday. It doesn't matter what day of the week we set the intention. If it's Tuesday, it's even better because we will do the opposite until Monday morning. And you laugh because I know you understand. This is such a human thing to push things off and to say, I've got time, I'll do that another day. These cycles Americans go through in particular when it comes to health and wellness and taking care of our physical bodies. That's why there are more diets and exercise plans than we know what to do with. We've got Paleo, Whole 30, Pilates, Orange Theory. We've got keto, low carb, yoga, HIIT workouts. I mean, we could go on all day listing the things that people tell you to do to get back on track with your health. So the problem seems to not be that we don't have the resources to be healthy, but we lack the motivation to stay disciplined and on track. And this, my friends, does not just go for our physical bodies, but for our spiritual ones as well. In the same way that we easily push our physical well-being to tomorrow, or Monday, or January, when we start the year anew, We do the same with our spiritual health, thinking that other things are more important. But I can't help but wonder how the rich man felt as he is reflecting over his life. He likely realized there were more things he could have done for people like Lazarus. He could have eaten a little less. He could have spent a little less in order to help the poor in his community. But here at the end of his life, He's left to wrestle with the truth that he has run out of time. The raw truth that this parable has highlighted for me over this past couple of weeks is that there will come a time in our lives when we too will run out of time. There will come a day when we won't have the tomorrow that we hoped for, And we'll be held accountable for our actions, for our inactions, for our words, for our thoughts, for our deeds. But rather than withering away at this, or letting this cause a deep fear within us, I'm here this morning to tell you that we have everything we need. Our Bible is full of stories (laughs) That can point us in the right direction. As Abraham told the rich man, we have the stories of Moses, we have the stories of all the prophets, but by God's grace there's more. We who are living today have the example of Jesus written out in all of these gospels. We have his parables that he taught, we have the example of the first century Christians trying to figure out what it looks like to follow after Christ, and to live a faithful life. And think about the scripture that George read for us just moments ago from Hebrews chapter 11. Some of you may know that Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, because in it, the book is attributed to Paul, he lists out stories of people who lived faithful lives. He says, he recalls the stories of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses before our passage picks up. And then you might have noticed that in verse 31, Paul says, Time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel. And then he goes on to give just a snippet, just a three or four sentence synopsis of the incredible things that they were able to do by faith pieces of their stories that we have within our Bible. Friends, this is just one chapter that highlights some of the stories we have at our fingertips. You know, the stories and lessons in the Bible are not just for children. It's not just for children's church. It's not just for youth to scare them into doing the right thing when they're off by their own for the first time. These stories are not just to make us feel good about ourselves, that we know the stories of the Bible. No, these stories are meant to transform us into people whose stories point back to God. So here we are, at the beginning of a new school year, on the cusp of fall, right around the corner. We're getting back in the groove of school schedules, of work schedules, volunteering, committee meetings, all the things that this season brings. Perhaps you too are on a health journey, or you've taken up a new hobby, or you're excited to get involved in a new way in the community. All of this is great, but I urge you, in the midst of all of this, to not forget about your faith. I invite you to consider how you're making time for these stories. I invite you to consider how you're teaching these stories to your children, to your grandchildren, with your friends and community. And I invite you to wrestle with how the story of Jesus, the greatest story that's ever been told, how that story is transforming your life. It's through these inspired stories that we will learn the power of loving God, of loving our neighbor, and that we can see the life-changing relationship that's possible with Christ. My prayer for all of you, and for me, and for us, is that when we come to the end of our days, that our story will be one that does point back to God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. May it be so. Amen.